All right. Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Ashley Clark. It's a real honor um, and really exciting to be here and connected with Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo, uh, the director and star, respectively, um, of The Five Bloods, an extraordinary epic Vietnam film which is out now uh, globally on Netflix. Um, before starting the chat, um, I'd like to point out that we also have uh, closed captioning available for those that need it. So please do tune into that if you need. But hello, Spike. Hello, Delroy. Thank you so much for joining today. Ashley, where are you, my brother? I'm in Jersey City, downtown Jersey City. Just okay. uh, hop across the <laughs> river from, uh, yeah. And I got, think we're, we're going to talk about... Thank you. Someone needed to say it. I feel better <laughs> already. And Delroy, I think perhaps we can come to the South London story a little bit later, because I think that's what everybody's here for. Oh, but, is that right? Okay. Yeah. It may we'll be come very to that. disappointing, but I, yeah, okay, for, for sure. <laughs> De right. Delroy, can I ask you a question first? Yeah, man, yeah. When, when you were growing up in London, you supported Arsenal, right? Hell no, man. Hell no. <laughs> Hell no. Look, man, that was, some, that was some stuff that got on the internet years ago and has taken on a life of its own. Look, for everybody in the world, I am a Manchester United fan, period. And I and I'm, I'm an Arsenal supporter. Well, we can't talk, man. This may be this may be the end of everything. This may be the end of everything right there, bro. No, I'm man you, man. I'm man yeah. you. Peace and love. Peace and love. God bless you. God bless you. Ashley, go ahead, man. I was going to try and steer this away from controversy, but we've got there very, very quickly. Um, <laughs> You're talking to the wrong two cats. <laughs> um, and the Premier League comes back on Wednesday, which is big news. But let's move to the film. Um, huh. Spike, um, this is a pioneering historical film in that it specifically tells the, the story of the Vietnam War from a black American perspective. Um, can you talk about why telling this story was so important for you personally? I was born in March 20th, 1957, Atlanta, Georgia. The Vietnam War was the first war that was televised into American living rooms. So when I was 10 years old, I was watching the Vietnam War on my, in my living room TV. I was also seeing the response to the Vietnam War, the anti-war movement. I, I saw all, I mean, a lot of, the, and this is, very, this is very true, a lot of the archival footage that this movie begins with, I saw on television. I remember Mayor Daley, Mayor Chicago, letting those stormtroopers crack heads at the Democratic Convention, 1968. I mean, and I remember Muhammad Ali saying, no Viet Cong ever called me nigger. So this is a kid, I mean, this is the stuff I'm seeing as a kid in Brooklyn, you know, and uh, it made, a, made a, a great, great impact on me. Another thing is that my, my late brother, Chris, we used to love World War II films going up. I mean, on New York Channel, the local channels, five, five, channel five, channel nine, channel 11. We used to love those black and white World War II films. And my father would see us watch those films and say, you know what? 
black people in those wars. They would say, in fact, your uncles, your uncle Clarence and uncle Arnold World War II. To, to keep Patton's army going through France, England, France, and Germany, his supplies were driven by black drivers. They had to do it at nighttime because too dangerous to die. They had to do it to drive the trucks at night and without the lights on. So this comes back to me, to Christmas attics. We just weren't in the Vietnam War or the Korean War, World War II. World War I. We were there from the get. The revolutionary United States against England. The Boston Massacre. The Re American Revolution War, the first person to die in this motherfucker. The dynas bitch, for this bitch, is a black man. Crispus Attucks. I was not taught that in school. I was taught the first president of the United States of America, George Washington, when he chopped down a tree and he said, I cannot lie. I'm not gonna tell a lie, I did chop down the motherfucking tree. <laughs> but we didn't know he owned, they weren't teaching us he owned 123 slaves. Mm -hmm. This is history. And it's unfortunate that one of the spoils of victory, they get the right to motherfucking history. And when you write history, it's not a coincidence that stuff gets twisted and the truth becomes, the true narrative becomes a false narrative. What is the true narrative of the United States of America? Very simple. Genocide of the native people, stealing of the land from the native people, coupled with slavery. That is, as facts. Facts, facts, facts. That is the the uh, the unmoral foundation. So the whole shit this country's built upon is fucked up. Stealing the land, genocide, giving our Native American brothers blankets with small with, with smallpox, moving them to reservations. All of a sudden, you know what? We just found gold here. We just found oil here. You gotta move. And 400 and, and, and slavery. The first slave ship, slave ship hit Jamestown, Virginia, 1619. So we're in this bitch for 401 years. That's so, in other words, that's why I want to make this movie. Mm -hmm. And you've spent so much of your career telling that history, whether it's World War II in Miracle at St. Anna or, or Malcolm X. And, and Delroy, I'd like to turn to you. This is Malcolm X when you play West Indian Archie. I believe that's the first time you worked with Spike and you appeared yes. in Clockers and Crooklyn as well. And it's been a little while since you've worked together again and it's so wonderful to see. Can you tell Can us I a jump little in bit? right here? Delroy, yeah, sure. Delroy, I didn't know until I read your article 
I had I did not remember you turned down the role for one of the cornermen. Well, <laughs> do the no, right not, thing. That's not <laughs> quite accurate. It wasn't on the page, huh? <laughs> I'll never I'll never hear the end of this. But no, you no, said, I never knew that. I, I well, forgot. Well, li listen. What happened was uh, what happened I was. What happened was um, that I got a call to come in and audition. I think it was uh, Robbie Reed's uh, office. Robbie call, Reed. My rep at the time. And this is for Do the Right Thing, by the way. For the do audience. the Right Thing. Yeah. Correct. Now we're talking 1988. Correct. And I had, I had just come off of um, uh, a play on Broadway called Joe Turner's Come and Gone, a brilliant, brilliant play by August Wilson. Uh, and, you were, and, and you were brilliant in that. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I just did not feel that that was the right move for me to make yet because, yeah, you're right. I did not see it on the page. So I, I, I respectfully declined to come and audition. That, that's what happened. Actually, yeah, yeah. But, but you got a call for, the, for your question, Malcolm X, Western Archie. Thank God. Yes. He, he came back to me from, for, for uh, Malcolm X, West Indian Archie. Question, uh, Ashley, what is your question? It was just really to talk about how this project came together, how you, you came to work Got again. Um, very, very simple. I, I want to just take a half a step back. Spike um, reciting all of that history that he just recited. Um, and I think that cumulatively, there's a, there's a thread through all of his work, and it certainly applies to Five Bloods. And that is, they serve as uh, what I've been saying about this film is that it is a historical corrective. And maybe we can expand on that later on. But the, the strain through all of uh, Spike's films um, is that in addition to all of the other um, boxes that they are checking, there is uh, there's a quality of the, of the work being serving as historical correctives, giving uh, audiences, giving the world a more accurate, from an African-American viewpoint, uh, a more accurate depiction of certain events. Um, with regard to the Five Bloods, Spike called me. I mean, I got, a, I got a, um, an email from my representative saying that Spike wanted to get in touch with me. And um, was it okay for them to give him my telephone number? I said, of course, yes. Spike called me and said, I have this film, Five Bloods, um, that, um, I want you to do. Um, take a look at the script and let me know what you think. That's the short, direct version of what happened. I received the script and then we proceeded to talk after that. And it's obviously one really striking aspect of the film that Paul is a committed Trump supporter. He wears the MAGA hat. Um, sure. Did, did you have discussions about that? Was that something you were always comfortable with? We had, I, was, I was not comfortable with it. And we had a couple of um, relatively short conversations. I called Spike after I had read the script, and I said I was not comfortable with that aspect, and please could we change that. Um, Spike, to his credit, uh, did not just say no out of hand. He didn't reject it out of hand. He said, let me look at it. Give me some time. I'll get back to you. He uh, sent me a text maybe three or four days after we had spoken, and said he really needed Trump to be a, um, I'm sorry, he really needed uh, Paul, the character Paul, to be a Trumpite. I then said, look, man, give me a couple more days with the script. I will read it again. Let me get back to you next week. I read it 
I read the script two additional times and it became clear that two things happened. Um, reading the script uh, the third time, uh, my wife and I agreed that Paul was the part um, for me to play be just because of the magnitude, the size of the man. I started thinking of Paul in terms of this um, Shakespearean and Wilsonian large tragic figure. Uh, and that was clear. Um, and essentially what I did was I, um, what's the word? I, I created in my mind a, a narrative that, would res that could result in Paul uh, make, casting that vote in 2016. And essentially it has to do with the betrayals and the loss that Paul has suffered. And once I created that for myself, I was frankly able to empathize with Paul and understand, quote unquote, his, his decision, even though it is not a decision that I myself would have made. But this was about Paul, right? Um, once, I, once I was able to come to an understanding of Paul's decision uh, to vote for that individual, I was fine. And I called Spike and said, I'm in, and yeah, I want to play, play the part of Paul. I if need I may jump in now. On, uh, on what, what, uh, and, and, and Delron, I'm not trying to blow your spot up, but what you did with your, what you did, man, I mean, it, it's, it's people are like fucked up. And excuse my, mm. excuse my profanity, people, but because you're making a, 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 a monster who's in the White House and your character supports this age orange and he's a sympathetic character. And mm -hmm. that is not an easy thing to do. Let me say this. It, it, ironically, uh, Spike, Ashley, and all, <clears throat> all of you who are listening to this, ironically, and this may sound like a very strange thing, but ironically, it has less, in the final analysis, it has less to do with that individual in the White House and more to do with what Paul's experiences have been and the depth of the betrayal and the loss that Paul has suffered that have made him profoundly vulnerable to this individual in 2015 coming along and saying, I can make things better for you. Um, so that's, that's how I, I, I rationalize. That, that's how you use that to play the character though, right? Correct. That I'm is just correct. talking about like I uh, and, and peace of love. I'm just thinking about what people told me. I hear you. Watch your performance. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, you, I you, 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 what you. I'm telling you, I'm gonna give you the you, next to your wife, your beautiful wife. I'm gonna give you the biggest hug <laughs> when I see you on the other side. God damn. <laughs> God bless, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's been very gratifying. And the, you know, your characters, his, um, the ferocity of, of him and, and the way that his, his comrades, his, his friends, they love him deeply, but they're also terrified of him. They understand him. It brings such a nice dynamic to the group. So Spike, I'd love to hear you speak about, or Delroy even, um, just, just the, the interplay with the other cast who are all so great too. Absolutely. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Spike. Go ahead. No, you go, you go, D. Go ahead. Okay. The ferocity, the love, the, the, the revulsion uh, that exists uh, at, at, at my political bent, and all of those things, actually, um, 
are indicative, in my opinion, of the depth of the love. The fact that all of those components can coexist in this group, within this group of men, um, are indicative of the depth of feeling that they have for each other. And the thing of it is, it's real, it's human. Because any of us who are living, any of us who are in relationships, who have had relationships, any of us who have had intense relationships, all of those things exist. You go through periods where you, you can't stand your partner. You're irritated with your partner. You uh, fervently disagree with your partner. But if there is, if there's love undergirding all of that, um, in the final analysis, you may not accept those things, but um, they do not cause the relationship to break down. Or sometimes they do. And with th this group of men, the bond is inextricable. The bond is, on some level, unbreakable. And for me, <laughs> that is profoundly human. And I think that one of the, the gifts, as far as I'm concerned, of being in this film uh, and doing this work uh, with Spike, Clark, uh, uh, Isaiah, Jonathan, uh, Norm, and Chadwick, is that we were able to bring a humanity and the bond that we had off screen, the bond that we developed, the chemistry that we developed off screen, then found its way directly into the work that we were doing in front of the camera. If I could piggyback uh, on Delroy very quickly. Delroy, everything you said is so, so true. And when you're in mm -hmm. a war, when you gotta look to your left and look to your right, and they're dependent upon you, and you're dependent between life and death, that bond is amplified. It's literally life and death. Yeah. It's amplified. That's, right. That's a great point. Now, the fact that we these, these bonds were created in, in a conflict um, accentuates and intensifies the nature of the bond between these, these, these men. Thank you. And connected to that, um, Spike, it's such a fascinating choice to have the, the actors in the flashbacks, the same age as they are in the present day. I thought it was a really interesting effect that that has. Can you talk us through that? It was, uh, there, there's several answers to that. Netflix, God bless them, was the last place to still get made. Mm. Everybody else had turned it down. I'm not this, I don't want this to sound like a complaint, but it's the truth. Black clans have been nominated for six Oscars. There was, you know, it had, been, had made the most, made the most money of all my films. Everybody else, everyone else said no. So Netflix was making it, but it was for a price. You know, what do you need to make this film? If I would have wanted to, to do the the, the agent doubt have added a hundred million plus to the budget. That film's not getting made. Number two, I've seen several films where they cast younger versions of the actors and it doesn't work. You're spending time like, who's the younger version of what actor? And then for a creative decision, I mean, another creative decision is that 
I respect the, the intelligence of the audience, the intelligence of the audience, and they would get it. That we're seeing memories. Memories. Another thing I like to add, it was over a hundred degrees. Many days. This was not shot in the Hollywood back lot. We shot it in the jungles of Thailand. Prosthetics would have been melting off people's faces. So that's that's the answer. And and I think it was it, I mean it's obvious that was the right choice too. Yeah, and it's a really kind of moving effect. I I, I took it as the men you know, they, they can't conceptualize themselves as, as young men. They are, they are who they are with all the baggage that they've carried with them. And I just found it really powerful. But what you said, Spike, leads me on nicely to my next question. Um, and I'll, I'll go to Delroy for this. It looks like a really, really super intense shoot. And I wonder if you'd ever shot anything to that, that level of intensity or discomfort, or if you could just tell us what it was like um, to shoot on location. Delroy, let me just say one, one thing first, and I'll give it to you. Sure. There was no makeup person walking around sweat, walking around with the bottle of water, sweating people up. <laughs> yeah, we didn't need was, that. The sweat, the sweat was, 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 was real. Um, it, was, it was a very intensified shoot. Um, I'll say this you used the word discomfort. There was no discomfort per se. Um, what I mean by that is that it was intense, intensified. It was physically and psychologically challenging, but I'll say two things. Psychologically and emotionally, it was, it was, it was challenging, but there was also this rush unconscious i never said oh my god i'm having an adrenaline rush but the adrenaline was ever present and that was a component in in making this work because the work was very exciting and it was very important and i think we all understood that without discussing it right um and so there was that component that enabled one to meet this work and to meet that challenge so it was not it was not uncomfortable for me i'm not sure about the other actors but none of us um, spoke about any discomfort per se, because this work was a large. Playing as hot as a mug. It was hot as a mug. It was. It was. But but um, but 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 over and above that, there was, and I don't want to. I don't want to sound pious or whatever. But there was. Okay, we got this next scene to do. We got this next scene to do, and the focus was on that, as opposed to man, I'm uncomfortable. Mm -mm. That was never. That was never. Um, that was never uh, in the mix. The other thing, Spike, do you remember, it was one day when we were doing, we were on set and we were, it was between shots and I was sitting next to Spike. Spike had showed me something in the monitor uh, that we had just shot. And I looked around and I saw uh, the Thai crew. And I said to Spike, Spike, man, this is the hardest working crew I've ever worked with. They were phenomenal. They were beyond phenomenal. And at that point, and it was not a conscious, necessarily a conscious um, um, uh, awareness in my head, but I think at that point, I was aware, I was 
doing heavy lifting psychologically and emotionally. They were literally doing heavy lifting, um, uh, transporting hundreds of pounds of equipment up and down those hills. Never a complaint. Now, I said to Spike, in time, they may, they've been, they may have been calling us all kinds of MFs. I don't know, right? <laughs> but had they been doing that, we would have known from their body language. They were always engaged. They were always 3,000% engaged. Vietnam, Vietnam and, too. And in Vietnam, absolutely. The crew on this film, they were phenomenal right across the board. So I think that if they could do what they were doing, then I could do my job, right? It was not about complaining. It was not about um, complaining about being uncomfortable or whatever. No, they were, they were extraordinary. And our job was to, frankly, match them in our departments of the work um, in terms of what they were doing. So there was no, there was no discomfort, per se. Thank you. And in terms of the, the style of the film, Spike, I really dug all the, the different aspect ratios and stocks and and it just feels like you're having fun with it. And the film feels big, even if you are watching it just on Netflix and all due respect to Netflix, um, but it feels big. Um, I'd love you to talk about the style of the film and how you might have been influenced by uh, other big war movies. Thank you for the question. This, we started, shoot, we, we shot and finished the film before this, uh, Corona 19 virus. So from the very beginning, this film was, in my thinking, it, we, had to, we, we had to do some David Lean stuff. Dr. Chivago, Bridge River Quad, which is quoted in the film, Lawrence Arabia, the words epic. So, we were going to get a theatrical release. Someone like my brother Morris Casey, my brother Martin Scorsese had for The Last Irishman. The world premiere was supposed to be in Cannes, out of the competition, in the Palais. Mm. The world changed. But there's going to be a time where we will all go back and be able to go back and see this film the way it was meant to be. Mm. On a big, I, mean, I just can't wait Amen. To, see this, to see this on a big, 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 big screen. And, and also not just for me, for, for the cast, for, for the world. So epic, That's, everything was based upon making this film as epic as possible. The script was written like that. The cinematography by Thomas Siegel, the production design, Wynn Thomas, the costume designer, Donna Berwick, this, the epic score of Terrence Blanchard, one of the greatest albums, one of the greatest albums of all time, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, epic. That, that, those, everything, that was the thinking. That was a game plan. And I shared the actors knew everybody, I will say we're making an epic film. So we just, you see, you have a plan. Just like any sporting event, whatever, I mean, any sport, whatever it is, you got a plan. 
But if you don't execute it, you're not going to win. So everybody, all departments, executed the game plan. And, and, and in terms of that, in terms of that playbook and execute, executing the strategies to win the playbook, the other simple thing is the, the story is epic. The, 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 the story of the experience of African-American young boys, for the most part, young kids who were drafted, who ended up in Vietnam, who for the most part, their stories have not been told for the most part, the story has not been told through the lens of their experience. And that in and of itself is an epic phenomenon that, that was being uncovered in this film. Yes, and, and the film obviously does have this epic canvas. It's huge. But one of the most memorable moments, Delroy, is your, your two very tight direct-to-camera monologues, which blew me away. Like, I felt physically pinned back. I'm quite you ain't relieved. the only one. Yeah. I'm quite relieved you're in a, in a calmer mood right now. I was a bit worried when we, <laughs> when we logged on Zoom. Um, but I know it's not sometimes easy or, or great to ask actors about to talk about their craft, but I'd love to hear if, if you're prepared and willing to talk about that moment specifically and how you approach that psychologically. Those, or, two, those two, right? Two, two moments, yeah. And how you approached it. It, it, is, it is difficult to talk about acting because it's, it's 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 always challenging to talk about acting without sounding precious. You know what I mean? Um, but technically, first of all, Spike had told me that the monologues would be to the camera, directly into the camera. And um, thankfully, by the time we were filming those particular scenes, uh, we had been working in Thailand for probably six weeks or so, so that I was, I was, um, I was connected to Paul in a way that was um, grounding. It grounded me inside the character. So there were two technical aspects, just the fact that we were far enough along in the shooting schedule that I was grounded and I felt a connection to the, um, to Paul. Uh, and I knew that I was going to have to do this work directly to camera, just like I'm looking at this little green light on the screen right now. Um, I would say that the, the, the largest technical component, the words, I did something on this film that I don't ordinarily do, and that is that I had to, because of the, the timing, I had to learn the words uh, memorize the words up front. And I would say that the first clue in terms of from Spike's point of view um, as director, when we started filming the scene, the first scene, the big monologue, uh, the words were fairly well implanted inside of me. So I knew from that standpoint that I had um, a grasp of what I had to do. It was not like I was fumbling for the words. I had committed the words to memory sufficiently. I mean, there was a drop word here and a drop word there, but generally in terms of the arc of, of what Spike had written, what Spike and Kevin had written, um, the words were committed to my memory in such a way that I could concentrate then on other aspects of delivering those words. 
the, the emotional and psychological aspects of the monologue. And I heard um, Spike uh, and the first AD, I believe, but Spike said, I overheard him say in between um, takes, because we probably did, I don't know, seven or eight takes of that, maybe, maybe more. But I overheard Spike say, leave him alone, he's in the zone. And when you hear your director say that, you know that you're doing something right. That just gave me an added confidence to negotiate this scene. And the other thing that happened was in, I started improvising, not improvising away from the text, but there were small words here and there, gestures here and there. And Spike did not say to me, man, don't do that. He let me go. He, he, he gave me the, um, the freedom to have those moments. So coupled with the fact that I overheard him say this, he's in the zone, leave him alone. And when I was, I had elbow room. I had creative elbow rooms. If something, um, if I was inspired to do something in the moment, um, he, Spike, as director, was not saying that, don't do that. No, there was space in the moment for me to express myself um, if small things occurred to me in the moment. So I knew- Can I talk about one of those things? Sure. So, Dory has a big ass knife in his hand. <laughs> and so, we're doing the scene and all these plants are there. He stops chopping them down left and right. And so, between takes, we had to bring in more motherfucking trees. Right. Right. <laughs> but I, but, but, but the, 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 here's the point, though. He's in his zone. I'm not going to say, well, uh, Delroy, you know, we only have so many plants, and so uh, I, you take where you don't chop down those plants. Hell no, I'm not doing that. I was telling the props department, give me some more trees, but keep the trees coming because that's all part of the physicality. He's, but he's, they did it. Here's another. Here's another. Here's another. Um, here's another. Chopping shit down like this. But here's another kudo for the crew. They replaced the trees. They were literally putting the trees back together. So that once we had, once the scene had a shape to it and the cutting on slashing, um, nobody complained. Nobody said, man, I wish he wouldn't do that. They simply did what Spike asked them to do and reconnected the trees, which is, uh, you know, kudos to the crew. Um, man, you're, but, you know, like, the you're, you're in the zone. Go ahead, Spike. You in the zone. You think Phil Jackson's telling MJ what to do? MJ's in the zone? Right. As Phil Jackson said, give him the ball and get the fuck out the way. <laughs> give him the ball and get the fuck out the way. And brother man, you had the green rock. I mean, you had the rock. <laughs> get out the way. So, look, look, you know, without, without, uh, technically, there were those components that existed that unconsciously let me know I was in going in the right direction with the work. And it, and it, and it felt, it, it, it felt rich. It felt, it felt good. And yeah, that's, that's the answer essentially. Thank you. Um, 
Now, Spike, this film has had an incredible response internationally, and it feels very timely, as like so many of your films that deal with racism. So because that hasn't been solved, <laughs> your films will feel timely. Um, obviously, we're doing this for BAFTA. So I thank you, BAFTA. I, I think I neglected to say that at the start, but thank you. There's been amazing Black Lives Matter protests in London with brother John Boyega. Um, it's been amazing to see. Um, do you feel galvanized by this, this moment? Do you feel upbeat right now? Is, is that possible? Yes, it is possible. Because uh, there's always going to be hope, my, hope in my, uh, my heart. But I'm, I'm going to add something before I answer your question. We've been doing Delroy, all the guys. We've been doing press. This is the second week of doing press. And several journals have asked me, and also people on social media, just people that know me, that we hurry back and do a quick pickup of the Black Lives Matter scene in the film. That was the first thing we shot. We shot that in pre-production. That wasn't even shot during the first day of Prince photography. That was the first thing we shot, period. So I think that really tells you that you could, you could, you know, it's easy to put two plus two to talk about how timely this, this, this film is. And what brings the answer to answer your question now, Ashley, is that what is, you know, I grew up in the 60s. So I was a young kid in the 60s. So I saw uh, some of this. But to see people all over the world who aren't black, who aren't brown, right. yanting, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, chanting, yelling. Fist in the air. Fist in the air. Fist in the air. The aren't black saying Black Lives Matter, this is something new. And, and, and then it's even amplified by my young, the young generation, the young white generation, my young sisters and brothers who do not want to repeat what their father, what their parents, grandparents, and ancestors have put upon black people they're done they don't want that anymore d go ahead and piggyback on that if you may well i just echo the 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 fact that the youth there's such a broad diverse um swath of youth not just in this country but in <clears throat> across the globe the thing that really um got my attention in a particular way was here in, in america the fact that these small communities, and there are not, there are very few, if any, black people inside of those communities, and they are taking to the streets and saying Black Lives Matter with their fists in the air. So it's it's it is it does feel different. I am perhaps a little more cautious than 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 Spike than others. Um, I want to add to my response that time will tell if this is a moment. Time will tell. History will tell. But um, yeah, don't do no end zone dance yet. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not doing the end zone end zone dance yet. But um, certainly, it is encouraging that the rejection 
of the status quo, the rejection uh, and response to business as usual is, is, is so broad-based. And Spike's right. The young people in particular, they're done with this nonsense. They're done with this nonsense. And you know what? It has, I, I want to I believe, Ashley, that this has to do also with the inex, inexorable nature of our humanity, people of African descent, since time immemorial, since the beginning of time, there has been this rejection of our humanity, this violation of our humanity, this refusal to acknowledge our humanity. And what has happened with African descended people all over the world? What's happened with African descended people all over the world is that we are here. We have, not only have we continued to be here, but we have flourished. And we have flourished against the odds in many, many instances, which speaks to the inexorable, as far as I'm concerned, the, inexor the inexorable nature of our humanity. And the fact that now we seem to be in a moment where um, other people are getting it, other people are acknowledging this, uh, that feels rich and special. Thank you. And Delroy, just to carry on with you for a moment. The other day I tweeted out something like, the Five Bloods features an amazing performance by Lewisham's Delroy Lindo. And no, people had no idea. A lot of people got in touch with me and said, what? Um, they had no right. idea that you were, you were born and, and had your early years in London, Jamaican Londoner like me. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear you um, just tell us a little bit about your sure. story from, from sure, London. Sure. The States. Absolutely. Um, before I answer that, where, where are your people from? Uh, Jamaica, St. Margaret. Okay. Spanish, Spanish town. Spanish town. Okay, so my family's from Ocho Rios. Ocho! Ochi, Ochi, in the parish of St. Mary. Um, Dunes River Fall. It, that's correct. It's very simple. It's very, it's, it's relatively simple. And as much as my mom was part of um, the Windrush generation, my mom came to England, I believe, in, I'm not 100% sure, but she came in 1951. Um, my mom was recruited to be uh, a nurse um, and worked as a nurse for all of her life. So the simple answer to your question is I was born in Lewisham Hospital in Southeast London. Uh, and my mother was part of that Windrush movement, uh, that, that movement of, of Caribbean peoples to the United Kingdom. Um, that's the short answer, but that is how I came to be born uh, in, in Lewisham Hospital in Southeast London. Thank you. It's really, it's kind of moving, really moving to hear that, that part of your history. And to see- I will say, can I just, can I just say this? Um, it, 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 the Windrush the wind um, phenomenon, which in my estimation, I'm sure you'll agree, the Windrush wind phenomenon is one of the world's most important, significant movements of people which changed, as you know, which changed the definition of what it means to be British. Because now you have all these people of color, these, these, these um, Caribbean-descended people um, who are now British. I mean, actively British, not just in terms of the Commonwealth wealth, but in terms of their lived experience. And it's really a tragedy, as far as I'm concerned, that there have not been more films dedicated to telling the thousands of Windrush stories that have yet to be told. 
there's a lot of work to be done out there. There's, there's a, few, a few films and, and histories that, that exist out there, but there's so much more that needs to be done. And just to, come back to, you, just to come back to you, Spike, um, just want to really say thank you for the film and for your continued commitment to, to bringing this history to life. It's been very significant for me personally, as in my development, working in this industry. And I think you've, you've done something really special with this new film. I don't know if there's anything else you'd like to, we're kind of out of time, but if there's anything else you'd like to say about this film and, and what you hope people get out of it? Well, I really try to stay away from uh, telling people what to think, uh, what they should get out of it. But I will say this, I have received, I'm on Instagram and people love the film, but, mm -hmm. but that's, that's not even important. The important thing is that people are telling me that their father, their grandfather, their uncles, their cousins were black Vietnam vets. And this man's, what he did, that's who they saw in their father, grandfather, mm. uncles, and cousins. Mm. There, the war, war is hell. And these, as, as Delroy said before, these, these guys, they were sick. It, they, it, they, uh, it was easy to forge your name, to get in if you were underage. 16, 17, 18, 19, these were boys. These were children, man. They were children. Children. And they came back and they are broken. And, I, and let, me be, let me be clear now. I'm not, white soldiers, they were catching hell too. This is mm -hmm. a different war. You, there's a famous picture of this soldier kissing this woman, Times Square, you've all seen the picture. I mean. At the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in World War II. Being on best did not get that. <laughs> Welcome. They were spat upon. Mm -hmm. Called baby killers. Right. And that's if you're white too. So you had the fact you're black. If they, if they, if they, here's the thing. If America treated white Vietnam vets like that, do you know how the black Vietnam vets were, were, were treated? And, 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 and I know I'm rambling, but this film has touched people directly who had fathers, grandfathers, uncles, and cousins in the Vietnam War. And it's making them, giving them a clear understanding of why they were they were when they were kids at a younger age and saw these loved ones come back from World War II. Right. Thank you. I'm just going to add. I know we're out of time really quickly, but um, uh, I'm going to I'm going to say that um, you know I got a call <clears throat> from my cousin uh, who was a Vietnam vet. He was the first person that I spoke with when I was starting my research process. He called me. And I just said, what did you think, man? And he said, you guys nailed it. You nailed it. And that for me, this is a cat who went to Vietnam. Um, he was 20, 21. 
a second cousin of mine who was uh, drafted at 19 years old and inside of four days was in country, was in the jungle fighting, 19 years old. Um, he has not, he can't watch, he has not been able to watch the film yet. But um, these are affirmations that the story that's told in this film has a validity, an authenticity um, that's touching people where they live, touching people where they are. I mean, I've, I've gotten on Facebook emails, texts from a from wide swath of people um, how much this film means to them. Lastly, I'll just say one thing, returning to the Windrush piece. Um, the black soldiers, Caribbean soldiers have fought for the British, World War II, World War I, going all the way back to any significant conflict that the UK was involved with, um, black soldiers were there, were present. Um, so any filmmakers that are out there who feel moved to correct that piece of world history, I would, I would urge you to please address it because it is a, it is a gaping hole, it's, it is a gaping gap in world history that Caribbean people have not been given their due in terms of their impact on British culture and specifically black soldiers in terms of their contribution. So and I got in the feedback on my brother, I told him in person, I'm gonna say it again, Sam Mendes, you know, he, he, he has some people of color up in there. Yeah, he did. Okay. Yes, he did. Yes, he yes. did. But he did. Amen to that. And, and I stand corrected, quote unquote. However, <clears throat> they were not central to the narrative. Yeah, they were not central to the narrative. And here we have a film with bloods in which the story is being presented through the lens of our experience. That's the huge difference. There is there's so much more work to be done. The Windrush scandal, wind scandal is one of the great shames in recent history. Read up mm -hmm. on it if you don't know about it. Uh, let's make those films. Let's tell those stories. Um, Amen. For, for now, I'd like to say thank you to BAFTA. Thank you to Netflix. Thank you to everybody at home watching in lockdown. Um, and thank you especially to Delroy Lindo and Spike Lee. Thank you for your incredible work. Um, it's you. a real pleasure. Thank you. God bless. See everybody on the other side. Indeed. Thank you. All right, Spike. Appreciate it. Thank you, Ash. God bless. Thanks for joining us. And remember, you can listen to previous BAFTA sessions and podcasts at guru.bafta.org.